This episode is for all you public transportation lovers out there. How about being the owner of the business that runs your city or town's bus system? George Goetz bought a shuttle business that he then steered into municipal busing contracts. His first one was Scottsdale, Arizona, if you've ever been on the bus in Scottsdale. There's a lot to like about this business, even if you're not a transport buff. Top of the list, of course, being those long-term contracts. But there are also aspects of the business that'll make you queasy, and George is frank about those. We get an overview of the broader bus and shuttle industry. Municipal buses is just one of a variety of niches. There's paratransit, NEMT, corporate shuttles. George breaks these down, including the pros and cons of each. Enjoy this drive through the shuttle business with George Goetz, who has quadrupled his business since buying it in 2016. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out Oberly-Risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. George Goats, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Hi, Will. How are you? I'm great. George, you acquired a shuttle and bus business about eight years ago. You've grown it a lot. You have locations in multiple geographies. And today we're going to hear how you've done that and learn something about the transportation business in the process. Please start us off, George, with some background on you. Sure. Um, Born and raised in Utah, I went to the University of Utah for undergraduate, got a, uh, an undergrad in finance, and really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, just seemed like a good idea in college. So coming out of college, I got good grades, and coming out of school, I didn't get the job I wanted. So I just went back for a master's of finance, really to get a, a second chance at recruiters and kind of spent more time figuring out what I wanted to do. You know, I, I just assumed you get good grades and, and the recruiters come running, but turns out that's not the case, um, <laughs> at least at the University of Utah, it's not. So uh, you know, while I was studying for my master's degree in finance, I also spent time kind of trying to get recruited, which turns out is, is useful. So I, I ended up getting a job with Bear Stearns and their investment banking group, which was, if you're in finance, that's kind of what you want to do. Um, mm -hmm. It spent uh, so I, I started with Bear Stearns in 07. Uh, everyone knows what happened in 08, so I was there through the crash at Bear Stearns, uh, bounced around a little bit, and ended up at a group called Lucadia in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's a private mm -hmm. equity group. Um, I'd spoken to him before, as you know, kind of my uh, postgraduate process of, of looking for a job. And so when when things went south with Bear, it, it reached out to them again, it worked out, and so I worked there for a number of years. 
and really kind of Lucade is a little different from a typical private equity shop in that we're not raising funds. It's it's a publicly traded company, so I guess it's not technically private equity, but we're buying companies, buying private companies, and holding them, and then selling them when we get you know unholy valuations. So we, so that it's it's kind of a stubborn philosophy, but it works well. You never lose money if if you don't sell. If you um, never sell, <laughs> that's, that, that was their philosophy, and it, it worked well. Really smart guys, um, and so I, I learned from I think some of the best. And at some point, you know, I I realized I wanted to do it myself. And it took a while. To- and, and and let me pause you there, George. So you realized you wanted to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Elaborate on that. So you you see people buying bit private equity is all about buying private businesses. And so you said to yourself, huh, I could do this as a loan guy with an SBA loan. Like connect those dots. Yeah, yeah. Or investors. I, I didn't really have a preference on how to do it, but I, you know, we were buying these companies from these people who, you know, started whatever company, you know, a guy who's out in the oil field and, and buys a few rigs and, you know, sells his company for a hundred million dollars. And I think, well, I'd, I really like that competitive set, you know, relative to the, the guys <laughs> I was working with who all have MBAs from Harvard, you know? And so, um, it made sense to me. And there, you know, this guy from Oklahoma is making more than anyone in my office. And so, so yeah, so that was kind of the idea is I think I can do this. I think I always kind of had that inkling, but, um, you know, as I did it and felt more comfortable, like, hey, I can do this, right? I've done it multiple times. I've seen how it works. Um, yeah. yeah. I decided to go. You know, you're, you're not the, fir- the first of my pr- former private equity guests to have had a, that, kind of, that kind of experience where working in private equity, they see, they see, yeah, people make money in private equity and it's uh, a really competitive and kind of enriching environment, a lot of smart people. Um, but then kind of seeing the operators who come from, you know, not as pedigreed backgrounds, really scrappy types often building, you know, having built giant blue collar uh, businesses and saying to themselves, huh, wanting kind of to be on the on the other side of the table, romanticizing maybe uh, the other side of the table. We'll get into uh, get get into that a little bit since you now are on the other side of the table as a small business owner. Um, But very interesting that this is kind of um, this is kind of a realization that people have in private equity. Okay, carry on. So you're at this this PE firm, and then what? So I'm at the PE firm. I I mean, I kind of got fired. Right? I kind of got pushed out. So I was there. It, it's not a career. Um, there's really one guy above me, right? And so you're there for a number of years, and then you, you go somewhere else when you find something better, when you're worth more somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to HP for a couple of years, and in in Palo Alto, and just hated it. Right? I mean, just wasn't for me. It wasn't my thing. Um, I got connected with a guy who was starting a subprime auto finance company. So left HP, jumped all in. We were about six months into this thing. We had an investor and the founder who was, who was in the subprime space decided you know, he was going to leave his company and, and join us and bring you know, his customers and expertise and stuff. He backed out. So, so we tried to find another guy, couldn't find another guy. Um, and I'm you know, six months into no income. And now I'm really serious about buying a business. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm looking and, uh, you know, I, I'd been looking this whole time, even when I was at Lucadia, I was always looking, um, but it, it, it kind of didn't have a choice. And so I found uh, this company called RTW Management on Biz Buy Sell. And so these, these three guys, Ryan, Trent, and Walter um, started this busing business in Salt Lake City during the Olympics. It's actually kind of, got wow. kind of a cool story. Um, they were driving for this guy. He he profit promised his employees, you know, these, these bonuses after the Olympics. He never paid them, and so 
Ryan and Trent were friends who worked for this company. They went to Ryan's dad, Walter, and said, hey, if you start a company, all the employees will come over. So they did. So that was the, the genesis wow. of RTW management. <laughs> and um, you know, that was, that was 2000. I bought it in 2016. So 16 years later, you know, they, they, the three of them had kind of built a good reputation for themselves. And um, you know, Walt was in his 80s. The other two was kind of a lifestyle business for him, and, and they were ready to transition. Mm-hmm. So these had been drivers, the two guys who had yeah. the idea they had been drivers at the mm-hmm. gotcha. Um, really neat. And when you said you'd been kind of looking uh, kind of passively or, or flirting with with search, and then I hear you say you found this business on biz by sell. does does quote unquote looking searching mean that you're just kind of glancing at biz by sell every now and then sort of thing? or were you doing any, were you actually engaging brokers or anything kind of more uh, more involved? I mean, I thought I was looking actively, right? I mean, I, I, all those times, I mean, I was, I was talking to accountants, I was talking to lawyers, talking to anyone that, that knew anyone with the business. But I think it, I just, you know, didn't have the same motivation. So, you know, I, I looked at a lot of things were probably pretty decent businesses, but I'd passed on them just, I think, getting cold feet, you know? And mm-hmm. so it, it was having to do it that I think made me look more in earnest. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't know mm-hmm. that RTW management was any better than some of these other ones I'd seen in the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was good. I, I liked it. It was definitely met the, the criteria I, I had. Well, we're going to get into why you liked it here in a second. But um, another question. So I, I hear you. Um, I hear your story about what did you spend six months with the almost startup where, where your partner backed out? So so a lot of my guests actually don't. They, they kind of feel like they have the entrepreneurial itch. But they don't necessarily ever say the, see themselves as zero to one types. You hear that a lot. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not a zero to one type. That's why I'm buying a business. I'm a one to two, one to 10 type. Um, but you have actually, while it didn't go well, it sounds like it actually didn't get off the ground, but you were willing to go all in on a zero to one brand new business idea. So how did you, how do you, how do, at this point in your life or now, how do you think about starting from absolute scratch versus buying a business? Yeah, I think it's a bad idea. Right? I mean, you know, <laughs> okay. like you said, to, to go from zero to one is harder than from going to, you know, one to 10, right? And so, I mean, to, to do what the founders of my company did, it took 16 years. I mean, they, they could have pushed it a little harder, but it just takes a number of years to, to get a reputation and to get into the industry. And it's just not worth it, right? Paying a little bit of money, you can, I mean, we've tripled, more than tripled the size of the company. I mean, maybe we got quadruple this year, right? I mean, that, you know, it's definitely worth we basically paid one X revenue or, or kind of four times earnings for the company. It was good, good value in my, in my opinion. Well, let, well let, so let's get into that some. So you see it on biz by sell. Um, tell us what you saw, what you liked about it. You've already told us it's 16 year, years old. It, mm. At the time it was 16 years old. What other numbers can you share? Just give us a profile here. Sure. It was doing about two and a half million in revenue and you know, we paid about two and a half million dollars for it. Um, or I paid about two and a half million dollars for it. So that's those are kind of high high level numbers. They had long term contracts, which I liked with VA hospitals. So they just ran shuttles, you know, to remote parking lots or um, other clinics and stuff like that. And you know, the market was small, but um, they had a good reputation. They you know they had a system. There's Department of Transportation rules that you know take some time to get set up there. Uh, for if you have a company that hires CDL drivers, there's a lot of rules around that. And you had I heard you say a second ago that you paid four x. So so roughly, roughly. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and how profitable is a business like this? What do margins look like? Kind of typical small businessy margins, ten to twenty five percent. Yeah, Can in that range. Be a little, it'll, it'll a little tighter than that. That's a pretty broad range. Yeah, they're in that range. 
Okay. <laughs> it's a good margin for what you do, really. Because it's, I mean, fixed route, you, you can predict your margins pretty well, right? I know exactly what I'm going to make next year, excluding new contracts. Um, yeah. I mean, down to a very narrow band. So for, for what it is, the margins are strong. So I'll see on, on biz by sell from time to time, NEMT businesses, non-emergency medical transport. Is that what that is? So NEMT is mostly associated with Medicare, Medicaid. Um, a lot of that's just brokering out trips. Um, this okay. was, they were CDL buses. So they're bigger buses that just ran mm. shuttles, happened to be to the VA hospital. It was really more probably um, employees than patients. Moving employees around. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so was there something about VA hospitals in particular? I mean, a lot of people work at hospitals. So is there, was there that? Or, I mean, could every corporate campus or, be, you know, concentration of employees be in your target market? Sure. So at the time, they had what's called GSA. So like a, it's a general service. I don't even know what the A stands for. But uh, these VA contracts were set aside in this uh, for companies who, who qualify for this GSA. So you've got to... Um, you got to do a bunch of paperwork, take some time. So there, there was some barriers to entry there, and that's why they stuck with VA. But yeah, the the market was definitely addressable, in my opinion, um, for you know big companies, corporate shuttles, stuff like that. It's you know similar function. Um, these shuttles run you know twelve or eighteen hours a day, whereas corporate shuttles are kind of morning and afternoon, um, you know commute times, and they're also bigger. They're like the motor coaches you see, you know, mm -hmm. which are. They're a lot more expensive than the cutaway shuttle buses were running in, mm -hmm. or the, they ran at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit different business model, but still something I'd, I'd consider when I bought the company. Okay. Hey, that's that's a potential addressable market. So give us a little bit more. So you, uh, the business is doing $2.5 million uh, a year in revenue. It's 16 years old. You've got these long-term contracts with VA hospitals, GSA, kind of set aside, set asides. Um, that's kind of the the niche that you're operating in. Um, but you see other opportunities for growth of this business into different sub-segments of, of the shuttling and busing world, correct? Including yeah, so, what we just said, well, corporate shuttling and what else? Corporate shuttling and just normal municipal transit, right? So two things happened. They, the GSA thing kind of dried up. The VA decided they, they passed some law. And I don't know if it happened before or after the, the guys sold to me. I think it probably happened before and they knew about it. Um, so they're they're setting aside these shuttle contracts now for service, service disabled veteran owned companies, right? I'm, I'm not a veteran, so I'm ineligible for these contracts. And we, we lost two contracts. We had three when I bought it. So we lost two of them to this, you know, this service disabled veteran owned set aside. So I, I, I'm kind of forced to go elsewhere. And the, I thought that the, the closest thing to what I was doing is just municipal transit, city busing. And so our first contract you know, outside of the VA was with the city of Scottsdale. And so they, you know, we ran their municipal transit. We won a contract with them, you know, just a shot in the dark, right? We put out a bid. I don't know how we got it. Our proposal is terrible. But I, I guess the reason we got it is because the incumbent sued the city of Scottsdale and we're the only other bidder. And so we were it, right? So, so we got in, we got the city of Scottsdale in our name. You know, it's not a huge, it's 20 buses. Uh, it's a good size contract, but everyone knows where Scottsdale is. And so going forward, we put that on our proposal and now we're a transit company. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, 
and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab. Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. So first, you lose these, you have the three contracts. So, so one thing not to like about the business is that there was incredibly high customer concentration. Yes. A yep. third, a third, a third, mm-hmm. roughly, let's call it. And, and so sure enough, you get into the business and you lose two of the three. Yes. And in what, in year one? No, this was, gosh, probably in the first, th- yeah, I mean, it, it probably ran out. Let's see. Let's see the first. No, we probably ran, had it for over five years. So they, okay. or uh, up to five years because the contracts are five-year terms and the following terms, they, they were set aside. So, yeah, we had a number of years with them. Okay. And so for those number of years, were you just up, just servicing those three, uh, those three customers? Yes. Yeah, so we got into Scottsdale before we lost the other two because we saw ah. everything going forward is getting set aside, service disabled. So before ah. we lost those two, we saw we saw it coming. So we we got into gotcha. municipal transaction. Gotcha. gotcha. And, um, and and the year you acquired the business was twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen. Okay. Great. Okay. And so it would just seem to me that just kind of intuitively shuttling employees um, with the, you know. It just seems on shut on smaller shuttles would be a lot lighter lift than running the municipal busing system for even a smaller city like Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm overestimating what what is involved in running a municipal uh, <laughs> the municipal bus system, but that that seems like a big leap. Um, yet you took it. Elaborate. What what was it? Kind of a big leap. And, and you actually you yourself acknowledged that like you were kind of underqualified to be doing this and you only got in Scottsdale because there was, no, there was no other bidder. So is it as big a leap as it seems or not so much? You know, it's not there. The operation's doing the same thing. The bus is a little bigger, um, but you're stopping at certain points. And a lot of our drivers at the VA were transit drivers, you know, maybe like part-time transit drivers or full-time transit and drove part-time with us. So we were kind of in the industry and CDL drivers kind of hop around from school bus to, you know, transit to maybe even like driving long haul trucks. And so, mm. yeah, it, it, and even in the the city's mind, it may have been a, a big leap, but it wasn't huge, right? If we couldn't start from nothing and go into a municipal transit, but we had the operations that we were able to kind of leverage to, you know, to make us look qualified. And we, we really were, it wasn't, we, we came in and just cleaned house, right? We did a way better job with safety, customer service, um, you know, complaints, on time percentage. So everything improved. The The company that had been there just had been there I'd say like 25 years and they just got worse and worse and worse. They knew the, you know, the founder knew everyone in the city. She was kind of, she was a bus driver at one point. She, she was kind of like a, you know, a thing. She had all these magazine articles up in her office about herself. Um, so she just got complacent <laughs> after so many years. And so it was really easy to come in and just out, outperform what, what they had done in their, their recent history. Yeah. And, and was that, sounds like because she was doing a bad job, but also was it you, George, 
saying to your team, guys, let's really knock this out of the park? Or was your team just kind of go in and, and did what they were already doing in their, in, their, in their shuttling and you guys were just already performing at a higher level and therefore did a better job? Or were you, was there a moment where you're like, all right, guys, this is showtime. This is our opportunity to prove to the world that we can rus- run municipal buses. Let's do this. Just crush it. Yeah, I think we had to, right? This is our, it's our only reference, so it's got to be good. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we, we, we do have to crush it. Um, and we do have better processes. Now I see, you know, we're, when we compete against our peers, we, we are better than our peers, especially the big guys that just, you know, how to, they just have to hire everybody and they, they don't, it's a service business and they're just not doing a great job. So I think Ooh. it's a little bit of both. We were fortunate in that when we took this operation over, they had a, like the, they call him a road supervisor. So it's like your lowest level manager. Like if someone pukes on a bus, he's the guy who goes and cleans up the puke, right? Um, mm. This guy was an absolute stud and they just kept, no one really noticed, right? This guy named Earl Hawkins. And we, like I, I'm interviewing everyone as we're taking over the operation. We're interviewing their employees to see who we want to keep and who we don't. And every question was, the answer was Earl. You know, who does this? Earl, who does that? Earl, you know? And, and I'm like, well, gosh, why isn't Earl running this place? You know, what are these other people doing? And so mm-hmm. we ended up promoting Earl to, to general manager and he, you know, he did a phenomenal job and he was just this under, um, undervalued employee that, that this gem that, that we found there. Uh, so that, that helped a lot too. Cool. Props to you, Earl. Now, uh, George also, so help us understand. So I'm hearing you say they lose the contract, you win the contract, but then you're able to get their empl- hire on their employees. Yes. So how does that all work? Like, why, why, sounds yeah. too good to be true, right? You just come in, walk in, take your employees, <laughs> yeah. keep going. It's good when it works right. for you. It's bad when it works against you. Um, but the lady didn't have any other operations. It was just um, that was her one thing. And so she didn't have anywhere else to take these employees. And actually, she was unbelievably gracious. She she brought brought me into her office. We interviewed everybody. Um, she She couldn't have been kinder about it. So it was actually a pretty cool process. And she really taught me how to do it. You know, we've, we've lost contracts since. And I decided at that point, if we lose a contract, you know, we're, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to be mm-hmm. gracious. We're going to facilitate a smooth transition. And um, that's, it, it, it was really cool to kind of see that as our first um, foray into public transit. Yeah. Even though this was her sole contract. So she was effectively out of business by losing this contract. Well, she did do charter buses. So like, um, ah. you know, buses to events and those, the bigger ones that we're talking yeah. about. She did do that, but it, yeah, it was the majority of her business. So when you win a contract like this, so you kept some, some of the employees, you hired some of the employees that were already working there. So pretty seamless. Mm-hmm. And then what about the buses, the fleet? Well, how does that, who owns that? Who man, like, what does that look like? So it, it's contract by contract. In this instance, the city of Scottsdale owned the fleet. They get, they get federal funding. So their, their buses are subsidized about 80%. And so it makes sense for them to own, for them to own the fleet. And there, there is a little like, you know, deferred maintenance, stuff like that. They argue about that happens with every contract. Sometimes it's worse than others. And what's to argue about? Because, because you're going to charge them for maintenance because you're going to maintain and you're going to absorb the cost of maintenance. And then you're going to need to be reimbursed for that. If, like if you don't own the fleet, what, what am well, I? Well, when, when you take over, the previous operator may not have maintained the vehicles, right? Because they know they're losing the contract before it's over, right? And so they've got yeah. a number of months and they're like, well, I'm not going to fix this. If it's not broken, right? I don't have to because um, I'm, I'm not going to be using it in two months from now. So when you get the buses, oftentimes they're, they've been under maintained. Okay. So what it really looks like is you are, when you get a contract, like a Scottsdale, Scottsdale contract where the fleet is owned by the city because the federal government subsidizes 80% of the cost of the buses, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you are basically managing the drivers and then the managers of the drivers. Yep. And that's essentially the, the purview, right? There's, or is there more? There's a little bit about, you know, scheduling and routing and stuff like that. Do we add out here? Do we, do we optimize? Do we move stuff around? So there's a little bit of that, but generally it's, it's the service that we do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's also just talk about, so, you know, your realization that the municipal bus market was a good one to go after, and then you get this contract happily mm-hmm. um, to, to get a kind of toehold there. What does that, assuming that you are successful in Scottsdale, what did that look like to you? How many Scottsdale size and above cities are there in the country? 500? Um, that's a total wild ass sure. guess. I have no idea. I'd say they're probably cities like Scottsdale, maybe between 100 and 200. Uh-huh. Okay. So then probably Scottsdale and above, probably only 300, 350. Yeah, that's they, right about right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so... That still that that's a, that's a lot. I mean, if you if you have one and you can just get you know another nine more, that's still a tiny sliver of the market. But now you've you know ten extra business. Um, is that is that easy? So <laughs> our challenge is it's political, right? It's not it's it's not operational success. It's not good pricing. I mean, those are factors, but the biggest factor is do they like you? Do they know you? You don't or and probably even more do they know you. So the big guys are doing a terrible job. And that's that's what I liked about us. Like these big guys are, are they're horrible operators, right? They've got mm. you know layers of middle management. They they've got all these rules. Nobody likes being there. It's it's you know they 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 really do a terrible job. I mean for huge contracts maybe they're necessary, but we compete really well against those guys in you know your Scottsdale, maybe a little bit bigger than Scottsdale and definitely below. Um but they'll They'll come in and say, hey, you don't want to go with RTW management because they're small. You don't know who they are. You're taking a risk. You're not going to get fired for hiring Transdev, right? They're, they're a publicly traded company. They're huge. They're going to do you know, a poor to mediocre job, but that's, they're the market, they're per- right? They're perceived as no risk. Exactly. They're perceived as no risk or little risk. And yeah, no one's going to fire you because it's like, oh, Transdev, everyone hires them. You know, like They're good enough. A recent guest bought um james um james bloom bought a small mechanical hvac business very small and provided a phenomenal service and got a like a larger contract and that larger contract really accelerated getting larger and larger contracts mm-hmm. because they just delivered great quality service and they were actually bidding for projects against some of the really big players mm-hmm. And the customer was getting sick of how the really big players just didn't provide great service because the really big players are huge and each individual contract isn't so important to them. And, you know, as as service companies get bigger, uh, quality tends to go down. Mm. And so just by providing better quality service, word of mouth traveled very quickly. And he was he just gobbled up new contracts, new business. Not so here, maybe because of those relation, those aforementioned relationships, sort of thing. Yeah, there's two. There are two relationships. There's one with the the company, which matters a lot less than the one with the general manager. Your, I mean, your your operation lives and dies by the general manager, and Earl. Yeah, Earl, and it's lived with us. Um, you know, in some instances, some of these big guys have great general managers, or they have general managers who are local and know everybody. You know, and so we've got to come in and say, okay. We got to, if we're bidding a new city, for example, we got to come in and convince this guy to, to either come over to us or we got to find someone and convince the city that they're, the person we've found is as good as this guy that they know and you know, their kids play baseball together and that kind of thing. So that's our challenge is probably the people more than, even more than the company itself. 
going back to my question about if you get, you know, you got Scott Scottsdale, you did it really well. Did that lead to a domino effect? The answer is no. There's just every city or municipality is kind of has its own friction, its own kind of moat in the sense of these relationships. Well, I think it did. So we, after Scottsdale, we accelerated, we got a bunch of cities, we got um, a handful and then COVID hit. So yeah, I think that was our challenge that the momentum really is real in our industry. So if you're if you're doing well, you can you can refer to your your current customers. That goes a long way. People see you growing. They're like, oh, you're growing for a reason. That that's kind of a counter to the the big guys narrative. But when we hit COVID and everything stopped for a couple of years, that you know our, our momentum kind of stalled, and now we're just getting that momentum back. Um, which you know it takes a few new contracts to get that. We've we've landed a couple of new ones, and so now we're I think we're we've got the story to tell again. Yeah, though I would imagine that you know, COVID stopped the entire industry in its tracks. And so I would imagine like with many industries, there would be kind of a, a resetting going on. And some of those entrenched relationships might not be quite as strong now post COVID. Yes, I think that's true. A lot of the municipalities and even on the federal side, they've, they've taken the opportunity to extend the contracts they had prior, right? So if they, the, the worst thing you can tell a procurement person is you've got to rebid, right? Nobody wants to rebid. It's a lot of work. You know, they have the uh, opportunity for protest or whatever, and it's just a nightmare. I mean, the, and it's, it, there's a real cost to it, right? Cost to people and um, resources. So they, they want to extend contracts as much as possible. So generally, these contracts are like maybe a two or three year term with two or three one year extensions. But with COVID, they've said, oh, well, let's just extend it beyond the, you know, the second or third year extension. And it, you know, it's questionable whether that's legal or not, but it gave them justification to do that. They don't have to rebid. So we're just now seeing a lot of contracts that should have come out in, you know, 2022 um, or, or even earlier this year. They're saying we're, we're calling them and saying, hey, you know, we've got on our list that you were supposed to, your contract ended last year. What's going on? Like, oh, we're, we're in the process of rebidding. So that's, we're just seeing that now. So the, the stuff really died during COVID. Um, and I think that's mostly the reasons because they, they push stuff out. And, and now we're seeing mm-hmm. probably 50% more, at least 50% more than we'd seen in the past. Um, and there is a bit of a reset, but we lost some contracts during COVID. Um, and, and so that, that kind of hurt our momentum. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're kind of trying to get back to where you were. Yeah. Yeah. I think we are back to where we were. And then supersede that. Oh, you're, you're back now. Yeah. And we're, we're just seeing that, um, I think that acceleration right now and aided by the, the tailwind of all these, the, just a normal amount of contracts plus the late contracts from the Mm -hmm. last couple of years added to it. Mm -hmm. Exciting. And so, George, where are you now? You, you, you're in Scottsdale. Where else? So, funny thing, we lost Scottsdale. The lady who, so we, ah. we ran it from for four years. Um, then we had an option for a fifth year that we couldn't come to terms on pricing, and so I think we pissed them off. So we made them. We said, no, we're not. You know, we're not agreeing to your pricing. You got to go out and rebid. And we felt pretty confident, maybe overconfident. Um, and the lady who had it before, <laughs> she does, she'd been working behind the scenes and, you know, she's, she's in all the, the women owned business clubs and she knows everybody. And she, she told me she'd been the whole time she'd been kind of working the, the political scene and, uh, ah. she got it back. Maybe, so. maybe, maybe a little less gracious than you thought. <laughs> yeah. But hey, it's, it's a, you know, it's a competitive market. Good for her. She, yeah. Yeah. she, she's, uh, she's a sharp lady. So, yeah, so we ended up, and, and that was one of the ones we lost during COVID. Um, I think you know we we probably got a little overconfident, and uh, you know we kind of figured, hey, we're we're doing better in every measurable aspect. Like 
our, our price is good too. They're, like there's no way we're gonna lose this contract. So I think we, we probably got, our, we're probably victims of our own success, uh, you know, in addition to the, the um, COVID problem. Can you give us some, some of the other names where you are, some of the other municipalities? Can you show this? Yeah, we're in Baltimore. We're in um, a town called Radford, Virginia. Um, we're operating, we were operating Summit County up until mm-hmm. the 30th of last month. Summit County is Utah? Yes, and then Morgan State mm-hmm. University. That's it for now. The city of Baltimore? Um, it's actually the VA for the state of Baltimore. Gotcha. So that's one that we've retained. That's the one of the three that we retained. Gotcha. Ah, from the original going all the way back. The original contract, yeah. I mean, we rebid it. It went out to bid again. We we won, but yeah. Ah, gotcha. And then Radford, yeah, that's a... So I'm in Arlington, Virginia. Radford's a, a, a quite a s- small town. So I guess I, sh- I shouldn't have thought about things in terms of Scottsdale and above because mm-hmm. there's all this municipal busing at cities much smaller than Scottsdale. And so th- of, of those are hundreds and maybe a thousand or more, right? Um. I mean, fewer than that. You'd be surprised. <laughs> we got, we nah. see these small cities. You kind of get to know the, the cities and counties or transit districts that comprise maybe multiple cities. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd say our addressable market is probably 500. So that's your, you know, cities nah. a little smaller in Scottsdale. So we're, we're looking at like 10 buses to um, 50 buses. I mean, we, we'd go 50 to 100, but I think right now we're kind of perceived as a, the, you know, 10 to 50 bus type company. And and fifty would be a city of what size? Like a Salt Lake City? No, Salt Lake's probably a couple hundred. Um, huh. So fifty is going to be maybe your San Diego or something like that. Maybe a an El Paso, Texas. One thing that I hear coming up a, a lot in our conversation here, George, is the power of relationships. Um, now, obviously, relationships are powerful in all business, but in sounds like maybe more so when it comes to city government and certainly you know when it comes to politics and relationships i mean and you know the c word corruption we all kind of there's a stereotype there um is this are these relationships that are so valuable do they ever flirt with what what an outsider might consider is like unethical uh or is or is it or not like yeah, t- kind of for the people in the audience who are wondering if dealing with city government, city government contracts entails like making contact with corruption, does it? <laughs> in Florida, yes, they're getting paid, right? So, but outside oh. of Florida, maybe New York, New Jersey, Chicago, Florida's, South Florida's the worst by far, right? Like, oh, okay. That's, that's the most corrupt. The, the former owners wouldn't even do business there because it's so corrupt. Um, but I'd say 99% of the contracts are somewhere on, on a scale, right? So, so if, if you do business with a company that you like, they're doing a good job, their price is reasonable, you don't want to change because they're real transition costs, you know, that that's probably not corruption, right? That that's probably if if you would do the same thing if it were your own business, you know, when you're representing the ci- a city or um, county or whatever, then I don't think that's corruption. But when it, it there's a real fine line and, and a kind of gradation into corruption, which is like, well, I know this guy, like you got a houseboat together, you know, like those kinds of things. Um, th- that kind of is where uh, you see it because we do smaller, uh, we call it small urban or um, like these, these cities where the population is not huge and everyone has some kind of connection. We, we see some of it there where like, I don't think any money's changing hands, but they know each other. And, and they're probably like some, some unspoken favors, changing hands and things like that. I would say probably the worst kind of corruption, the most destructive and like kind of like 
demoralizing is the kingdom building that you see where someone just wants to build this huge empire just so they can justify a bigger paycheck or have a better resume or, you know, go on to the next job. That stuff's just, as far as like cost to the government is, is unbelievably destructive. And that, that's- So, the- so el- elaborate on this for us, George. So th- this will be a bureaucrat for- Lack of a better word, somebody working in in the in the city government uh-huh. who is trying to just uh, accrue power and a fief, a kingdom, yeah, to to just because that's how you go up the ladder in city government, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's how you go up the ladder. It's how you you get a bigger paycheck. You're more important. You're you know, and that that stuff happens. And it's if you think about the dollars, like we have, we have a situation, one of our contracts that we operated where you know this lady wants a big entity, right, and so she's. She's spending more than she needs to, hiring more people than she needs to, because she gets a, a title. There's there's actually official titles based on the size mm. of your organization in transit. So you're a mm. general manager if your organization is so big. If it's if you're bigger than that, you're a um, what do they call it director. executive director. Exactly. And so you know if they want to be an executive director so bad, they'll just hire someone that has no purpose and their org chart is completely bloated just to hit that title. And there's probably a pay increase associated with that. And so that kind of corruption, you know, you might spend an extra $3 million a year to get a $30,000 raise, right? And, and those people think that's fine. That's a, you know, that makes sense. And that's how you do it. But, you know, the, there's a lot of money that's wasting a lot of people that suffer because of, you know, a, a tiny raise for one person's salary. Yeah. That's really disheartening, George. Yeah. Does this, has this, has being in this business at all disillusioned your faith in government? If you had any to begin with? Yes, it has. I mean, I, I don't has know it? that I have a strong opinion coming into it, but yeah, it, it, just the, the money that, and sometimes it benefits us, right? Sometimes if, if money's allotted, they're just like, oh, take it all. You know, we don't, we, if, if it's been budgeted, like we don't care how you can spend the whole budget, you know, we're, there's, there's not a lot of scrutiny. Um, if you go over budget, sometimes they just say, we're not going to give it to you even if we owe it to you because it's our budget, right? So there's some of that idiosyncrasy in government, um, and it, again, it's it's not their money. Um, and I think a lot of times if if a government employee looks at something and says, well, wow, that's a lot of work for me, um, it'll save the, you know, it might save us millions of dollars, but but it looks like a lot of work. I'll just, just do the easy thing. And so, I, I mean, you just feel like if they would pay more to some of these people who are putting out proposals who are overworked or have less capacity for whatever reason, the government would save a lot of money. Right? If they had a more, yeah. you know, because <laughs> he's, you know, someone's making 70 grand a year and they're, they're bidding out millions and tens of millions of dollars worth of goods and services, you know? And so, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, there are reasons for it, but it, it's not efficient. Yeah. It is, it is kind of disheartening to in some, in some instances, like a, where you see stuff that, that kind of is corruption, you see, you know, a whole board that's kind of in on something that's, that is, it is pretty demoralizing. Growth. So do you see, basically bidding on bidding on contracts the the ones that you've talked about that just are on schedule to be bid and then the, then the kind of ones that were were extended because of covid all of that all of that organic growth possibility coming what about inorganic growth and in, in buying buying other busing companies from retiring owners is mm-hmm. that is that a play here yes yeah absolutely i mean generally it's easier to outbid them than to buy them and if you're going to buy someone you're probably going to buy a, a regional player so there's some advantages we're unique in that we're small and we're national. You get a lot of small guys who are regional, you know, so they might do a couple adjacent towns or whatever. Um, but those would be the folks that we would acquire. We looked at one that was really underperforming. Uh, we made an offer, gosh, this was maybe a year and a half ago. 
I mean, the offer is basically zero. They were losing 25 grand a month. Um, and we said, we'll take over your, you know, all your obligations, your contracts. They, 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 they were entertaining it. They renegotiated one of their contracts. You know, I don't know why they didn't renegotiate it before they engaged with us, but they did. They renegotiated one of their contracts and said, Hey, we're doing better. You know, we're not interested in selling. Um, but they're still, from what I understand, they're still losing money. So we, we might re-engage those guys. That's, so we looked at them, we didn't buy them. There's another one, um, in Montana that we looked at, we, they did, they were kind of like the, the company that we beat out in Scottsdale where they did part, part of their business was, you know, oh, those over the road kind of tour buses. And then the other part was doing fixed route transit. So we didn't buy them for that reason. They were kind of more skewed towards the over the road stuff, which we don't, we, our business is built around being efficient and focused and, and specialized. So. Um, we couldn't figure out how to parse that out. So we didn't buy those guys either. But yeah, inorganic growth is is definitely an option in, in certain circumstances. You just said that you guys are a little unusual in that you're small but national. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I'm thinking Salt Lake City to Radford, Virginia, I don't even know what airport you'd fly. I, I don't actually know exactly where Radford is. I suspect you'd fly into Richmond and drive from Richmond. You could do that. Um, you fly into Roanoke, actually. It's the quickest way to do it. I was going to, I thought Roanoke, but yeah. Roanoke is a tiny, a tiny it airport. Tiny. I mean, there's six or nine flights coming out of it, going out of it a day. And it's a small, very small city. Yeah. That's so, so getting, so, so talk to us a little bit about having this kind of very far flung, uh, these very far flung operations. You've already mentioned that the GM on the ground, it like all comes down to that. So just give, a, give us a picture. It really does. We've been fortunate to have, unbelievable general managers. And that's part of what I like about the business. Cause well, you know, like finding guys like Earl, right. Who are, who are underappreciated, underutilized and, you know, giving them some training, some, some experience and some opportunities to improve. And those guys like Earl loves it, right? He loves his job. He loves working for us. Like, you know, he's making two or three times what he did when he started with us and he's, and he's doing a great job. The city loves him. Everyone loves him. So those kind of success stories are cool. And like the, the, other employees see that, right? And so it creates this, this good environment, this esprit de corps. And right now, Earl's at the point where he could move up again. He's just got to find someone to replace himself. And so that's his challenge. And he's, he's still working on it. He hasn't been able to find anyone. I mean, I think he's, he's kind of has a high standard. But if he can find someone to take his job, we've got another position for him. And so that, that, it kind of flips the, you know, the HP corporate mentality where you don't want you know, someone who works for you to outshine you it's kind of the opposite, right? Like all you want is for this person to, to move up, right? And so you're helping them, you're looking, you're, you're doing everything you can, searching for a way to get, or searching for that person who can, who has the ability to be promoted. And so it's, that's kind of what we want to be is the opposite of corporate America. I mean, it's, I think for the foreseeable future, we can be that. Um, as long mm-hmm. as we keep growing, we have opportunities for these guys to move up and you, know, you get a bus driver who, you show up on time, you're a good person, you work hard, we'll, we'll notice and we'll, we'll get you opportunities to, to do other things and, and we'll promote you. And that's, and all the bus drivers like that. They see that they feel like their job matters. And, um, that that's 99% of our success, right? You've got policies and procedures and manuals, but really if your drivers aren't happy, not, it doesn't matter what kind of, you know, manual or, or HR processes you've got. It doesn't help, right? The, the drivers who like you, they don't, they don't file each, they don't file work comp claims, right? They, they take care of their customers. So, I'd say in our industry, that's that's really the the key. So on the ground, let's say in Radford, you your general manager there, so or in any of your locations. So the, the general manager is really kind of running this as a pretty autonomous 
business, mm-hmm. all the back office is flowing up to you guys mm-hmm. uh, at headquarters. Um, but in terms of literally keeping the buses running on time, that's you know that, that, that that's always the cliche we use: keep the keep the trains running on time for a good operator. But in, in your case, it's literal keeping the buses running on time. That's essentially what they're doing and keeping the buses maintained. And you maybe day to day don't have a lot of visibility into that. They're running to use the word again, their own little fief, sort of. <laughs> yeah, they are. And, and the people who succeed in our company love it, right? They love that I'm not in their business, right? They they report to me and, and pretty infrequently. I mean, I've got a, a guy out in um, like the Eastern shore of Maryland. I mean, I talk to him a couple times a year, right? He just takes care of it. He does a good job and that's it, right? He doesn't, you know, I like him, but we don't need to talk. And, and he mm-hmm. likes that I trust him and I like that I can trust him. And so I think, yeah, that's that's part of the characteristic a general manager has to have is they have to want to have that kind of autonomy, and mm-hmm. and I think they do more. Right? If if I'm not telling them what to do, they're like, oh, they they do more than probably I would even ask them to do. Mm-hmm. And what about again going to an like a transportation business where timeliness is really is the KPI is mm-hmm. the the value that you're delivering to the customer? Are are there metrics being tracked of like what percentages uh, what percentage of your buses arrived at their stops late you know mm-hmm. every week and stuff like that i mean how high tech is it and how how how, how much are those numbers being scrutinized it, it's getting better and it's cool some of the technology that's coming out you know in 2017 it was pretty bad right the numbers were unreliable you know because they're they're testing certain stops and you've got a, a like a, a gps locator that you've kind of programmed at each stop and they were unreliable for a while. There's a lot of technology that again, the government overpaid for. Um, but now you've got, you've got, uh, you know, tablets that are kind of pre-programmed that, you know, the stuff that used to take a year to program. Now you, you download on your tablet and it's almost hundred percent accurate. So that's, mm-hmm. they'll measure on time performance really in our industry, you know, the, hitting your first stop is the most important, right? You, you've, mm-hmm. you're kind of on time at that point. But a driver's going to drive at the speed of at the flow of traffic. So really, if if you get behind, more often uh, it's the it's a bad schedule, it's traffic, it's weather than than actual driver error, um, a driver driving slow. Uh, if the if the schedule's not good, right, the the time points are somehow don't match up with the flow of traffic, or if you don't get enough, you have recovery points. You know, so you'll you'll drive a route, and every once in a while you'll build an extra five minutes. So if you're behind, you can get caught up that way. Because you definitely can't drive faster to get caught up, right? That's a no-no. So, <laughs> so yeah. So there, there are multiple aspects to it. I think they put a little more emphasis on on time performance. There, there is a metric that gets in every contract that gets tracked. Uh, but, but we kind of say, look, if we get to our first stop on time, our drivers are doing what drivers do, you know. And so okay. the on time, but that that said, our on time performance is still better than our peers. So I, I don't know what they're doing. I mean, every once in a while you get a, a driver that'll take the bus to McDonald's or something like that, but in general, that's that's not like it used to be. With you know, you get a ding or a text message if they go off route now. So it's it's a little mm-hmm. you know a little tighter than it used to be. And going back to your your GMs, your operators now for a sec. So um, it, the reason I'm I'm um, lingering on this is because this is kind of will be universal universally applicable to anybody who has a small business where there's remote GMs. Mm. 
what do you do if one of those folks quits? I mean, it sounds like you you have great relationships with them, so they're probably mm. likely to give you, you, you hope, lots yeah. of notice, yeah. enough cushion so that you basically just hire a replacement. But but walk us through that because that does seem like the nightmare because it's a pretty, it's a, I would imagine it's a pretty specialized role, no? Yeah, that's true. Okay. Um, knock on wood, we've never had anyone quit up to this point. And I think that's your first line of defense is treating them well and giving them opportunities to advance. And if they know they've got other things coming, then they won't quit. And And our peers do a, a horrible job. And so, so there's not a lot of good places for them to go. Um, I guess if, if someone were to quit, our two backup plans are to send corporate folks. Um, we've got kind of a COO, if you will. So she'll go out and start new contracts. Um, she can fill in, she can do that kind of thing. Or even I guess better than that would be our assistant general manager. So the idea is we're always training. We're always trying to find someone. Our, our biggest need isn't bus drivers, right? It's it's management. And mm-hmm. so we, you know, the the ideal scenario would be our assistant general manager can step right into that position. And that's what mm-hmm. we tell our general managers. You should have someone trained well enough that if you get hit by a bus, then the assistant general manager can can take your place. <laughs> More uh more bus cliches that happen to be literal in your in your business. And when you say the opportunity for advancement, so give us a picture of the of the hierarchy of your organization. You got the drivers, the gen, the general managers and assistant general managers um, who represent kind of a one person or two person thin layer of management. And mm-hmm. then if say say your GM in, in the Eastern Shore says I'm I'm ready to advance now and I've got a, a great replacement for me, where does where can he or she go? So generally it's it's relocation. Right? You're you're running a bigger operation. Ah, so there's there's and there's between driver and general manager. There's a handful of management positions. Um, yeah. You know, so I mean, you might see in a bigger contract four or five management folks, supervisors. And so, how big is your organization today, George? Um, give us a picture of of uh, revenue, if you if you can, and employees number number of employees. Sure. So last year we did about eight and a half million. I think we'll do ten this year. Um, let's see, we've got probably 130 employees. And of those 130 employees, how many of those are like drivers versus management or some, some sort of back office yeah, or management? Probably 115. Wow. Yeah. So it takes, it takes 15 people of overhead yeah. to run 115 other drivers. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Okay. So, well, that's, so, so eight and a half million this year and hopefully uh, last year and hopefully 10 by the end of 2023. Mm-hmm. And you started at two and a half million, what, seven years ago, uh-huh. or I guess eight, yeah, seven, eight years ago, eight years ago, as I said at the top. And so not bad Four exit in eight years. Is this the success that you, you wanted, or do you feel like you, you've done things wrong? It could have grown faster or what? This, <sighs> how do you feel? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's success. Um, COVID played a role, yeah. right? That, that, yeah. that set us back. We, we had a good trajectory. We were on that trajectory. I think COVID had something to do with it. I made some dumb mistakes. Um, you know, I, I, one thing I didn't mention that I guess is, is relevant is, is pissing people off. Right. So if that's, that's really where we make and lose our money. So the contracts that we've won are really because the incumbent made somebody mad. You know, that's, that's a hundred percent of it. If they, if they not made someone mad, they could probably get away with a little higher price, a little lower quality, but you make someone mad and like, that's it. So I, I there were a couple instances I could make someone mad in Scottsdale. I made someone mad. We had a city called Aventura where, you know, they, they reduced our service and we had to renegotiate price and I was a little too aggressive. 
made them mad. <laughs> you know, they, they went with someone else. So um, I, I learned quite a bit there about, you know, about uh, people being sensitive and, and customer service and that kind of thing. So I, I think that was probably, you know, I'd say overall, yes, it's been successful. We could have been more successful. Um, we had another operation where I had a partner um, who was a, a service disabled veteran. So instead of us having the contract, we partnered with this guy and and we do all the work. He gets half the money, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but he got, he kept all the money and he wasn't paying us. So I, I, I just pulled all our equipment, shut him down and um, probably a little bit rash. He ended up going bankrupt and they didn't give us the contract to get, it was a, it was a whole mess. And so, you know, had I been a little, you know, gentler there, I think that was a very profitable contract we would have retained. So, you know, I made some big mistakes that have, have hurt us, but despite those, I think we're still, achieving success. And, and, I, and mm-hmm. now I think the future is a lot brighter because, you know, we've learned a lot um, from mm-hmm. those mistakes and, you know, we're, we're getting more uh, politically active, which is helpful, it's extremely helpful. And not even just politically active, we're, we're reaching out proactively to cities that whose bids are coming up within the next year. And we're introducing ourselves, asking them what their pain points are, what they're looking for. And, you know, that that's really made a world of difference. And I think we'll, we'll see that in the next, the, the benefit of that in the next 24 months. Very exciting. And and so do I hear right that you have about four primary contracts now, four yep. primary customers or contracts? So so actually you only have one more than the three that when you bought the business, but they're all just a lot bigger. Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And by the way, what happened to the, to the, the non-municipal uh, the non-municipal contracts you had, are you still doing any of that stuff or did you let all those contracts when they, when they expired, you let them, let that business go? Like the, the federal stuff? E, well, like the VA hospitals that you started with. Yeah. So like, we have the one VA hospital still in, in Maryland. Baltimore, I guess. Yeah. Um, we, the, otherwise it's, it's almost all set aside for service disabled veterans. So we have a partner now, not the guy that we took the bill, you know, that we, we took our ball and went home with, um, but we've got a new partner that's, that's trustworthy and, uh, that's slowed down too. That, that's probably been the biggest, they, they've been the most affected by COVID or, or taking the most advantage of, of COVID to, to extend their contract. So there's been a dearth the last couple of years on the federal side because they've, they don't want to bid. I mean, bidding's harder on the federal side. You know, they're, they have more latitude to not put stuff out to bid. So, um, yeah, so, so that one, I think we'll see a lot of opportunity in the, in the near future, but that's, that's kind of been dead the last couple of years. Do you envision running this indefinitely, growing it indefinitely for the duration of your career, or might you sell to a larger player if, if there was a knock at the door or do you have a plan? Or is it just like, you know, you know uh, optionality? Yeah. The, the optionality. I mean, the, the, our peers, the big guys are acquisitive. I mean, they're, they're gobbling up little guys all over the place, but it, you know, going through the acquisition process, I feel like it's probably easier to, I can create more value growing this than I can, you know, selling this and, and trying to acquire another business, you know, just the, mm-hmm. the process of, of acquisition is so hard. Um, so I think I'll grow this. I feel like it's you know, until I see some resistance, right? Right now, I just see green fields for a long time. You know, I think yeah. we can get to 50 million in revenue and not be big, not be bloated, not have that, you know, crappy layer of middle management. Um, but I think once we hit whatever that, you know, that size is where we have to change our business model, I think that's where I have to make a decision, right? Do we just optimize and become profitable and, and stay a certain size where we have a, a good span of control? Do we grow and, you know, get big and hopefully do something different from our, our larger peers right now? Or do we just sell and walk away and not have to worry about getting sued by 
people who slip and fall on the bus. Do tell. Yeah. So is, is getting is getting sued uh, also Ooh. another uh, hazard uh, of this business? Uh, it's such a pain point. We, we just settled for $200,000 for some guy who like slid off of his seat and landed on his butt and said he broke his neck. Like it's. Oh, you're kidding. No, it's, I mean, like if you fall on your butt, how do you break your neck? And why are we, uh, the problem is you had a pacemaker and you're not able to do an MRI if you have a pacemaker. So there's just a lot of circumstances that led to this like outsized um, settlement that just hurt. And, but do you have insurance for that? Yeah, we have insurance. We, we have, um, we're part of a captive insurance company. So the way it works is you put in your premiums, you, you pay a fee to manage the insurance process. And then, and then you have reinsurance, you know, above whatever the level is like $300,000. But if, if you don't have claims, you get to keep whatever is below. So say, I think we pay like, let's say 300 grand a year in, in insurance. Um, you know, hundred grand of that goes to, goes to manage it. So we have 200 grand every year in a pool. And if we don't have any claims, we get to keep that money. So mm. it's kind of our money this year or that year, I think it was 2020. It happened in 2020. We just settled this, just settled last week. Um, so obviously we're not getting any money for that, <laughs> that year. So it's still our money in a sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it doesn't feel spent. It's not spent until it's spent. Exactly. So so, think, so this yeah. guy made out two hundred grand for, you know, faking a, an injury, and that that's pretty. I mean, it happens happens all the time. Usually, this was a, a unique combination of circumstances. Usually, if they're faking it, you give them five thousand dollars, and they know they know where the threshold is. That like they know what their case is worth. Like it's it's almost like a, there's a calculation for what their case is worth, and they know what that is, and they'll you know they'll settle for that amount, and you just kind of put up with it. And is this more common in your industry than others because people like this kind of target government or because they target transportation? Or what about this industry is so vulnerable to that sort of behavior and abuse? I think just because you're, you're moving people, right? I mean, and it's, you know, everyone, there, I don't think we've ever had an injury that was like substantiated, right? It's always like, oh, my back hurts, my, you know, like there's no like, we've never had like a broken leg or anything like actually shows up on a, an x-ray, right? It's always like, soft tissue stuff. And it's hard to say, you know, then I think that's why, cause they can say, Oh, I got whiplash or, you know, something that's hard to define. And, and it's, you know, we, we don't have a lot of solid defense in those instances and we have cameras mm -hmm. everywhere now and we, we do what we can, but you know, if uh, most of our claims are like our bus hits the brakes and someone like slides forward and falls and they, they make a claim, we, you know, we have very few accidents, but, um, yeah, I think it's just just vehicles, and like anytime there's any kind of physical damage to a vehicle, there's a claim. Someone says they were hurt. You know, it's it's almost like depending on where you are in the country, um, some states are worse than others. It's almost a given that Maryland's the worst by far, right? Everyone, everyone's got an attorney in Maryland. I mean, we hmm. we we have claims where like someone will get hit and like on camera, you know, because we have cameras in the buses, they're on a phone with their attorney, and I'm like, how do you guys have an attorney? Like, I don't I don't have an attorney. I don't know. I'd call if I was injured in an accident, but all these people mm -hmm. know and. You know, they, they fall just below the workers' comp claim levels. And anyway, it's it's the whole industry out there. Um, but it's 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 almost given. If, if there's a, a collision or incident, someone's going to say they were hurt. Yeah. God, that uh, more more disheartening view of, of human nature here. Uh, but, but the point about, yeah, moving people around and you have so, I mean, it's disheartening to hear how much abuse there is. But given the 
volume of human bodies that you're moving on a daily basis and on a monthly basis mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, along roads, like, does that ever keep you up at night? I Actually, this reminds me of, I, I actually talked to a, uh, a busing business, not municipal busing, uh, and, and the owner was somebody who had been a business broker. So he knew to how to kind of talk to a prospective buyer. And he said, look, I, I like to disqualify people so that I don't waste everybody's time. If you want, if you want this business, you got to be really co- comfortable with liability because some people just can't sleep at night knowing that their business and maybe ultimately them is responsible for 150 human bodies, you know, cruising down the road at 60 miles an hour. Is there something there in you that he that he was talking about? Yeah, I think there's there's the moral obligation and there's like the the physic just the, the the fiscal concern. Um, as far as the moral obligation, I feel like we can do that better than anyone else. And so these people are going to be moved in a bus. I think I'd like our company to do it. I'm okay with that. The fiscal res- the fiscal part of it, just the concern that something happens beyond our control or you know, even if it's our operator's fault, you know, we, we I think we minimize that more than anyone else, but if something happens, yeah, like the, the 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 concern of having fifty people roll over in a bus, like that's that's catastrophic. And if if I were to sell the company, that would be why. I mean, I love operating, I love our employees, I love I love being a business owner. That that's the one thing about the business that I hate is. I mean, I don't even mind the the corporate and the politics and stuff like that. Like I can deal with that, but the the part about where people will just lie to your face and say they were hurt and that kind of stuff, like that's that's the hardest part of the business. Well, that's actually, that's really clarifying. And it's a perfect segue. I wanted to ask you for people listening who might be considering this industry or, or, or like the sound of it, what would you tell them? Is it, is it now that you're in the, on the inside and mm-hmm. have been on the inside now for seven or eight years, is it, is it a good industry for searchers? It sounds like you like it other than people lying to your face. What, what, what would you say? I, I don't know. I and mean, then all, we all recognize that you don't want, we're, you know, by saying you like it too much, you're inviting competition. So with that aside, <laughs> give us your true. honest assessment. <laughs> you know what? If I were to be able to acquire a business, like magically not go through the whole process of, of finding one and talking to the owner and just selling it to me, um, I think there, there are better options uh, because of the, the liability issue. Um, but that said, it, this... It, you, it's, it's a, there's a place to grow, right? There, there's room if you have, if you can buy an operator um, and get started that way, there, there's room to grow. There's, there's a lot of operators who aren't doing a good job um, and there's definitely room for improvement in the industry. I think that there's another adjacent industry, which is paratransit, which is a lot bigger. And so that's one that, that we're kind of flirting with now. So that's your, uh, you know, your short bus, if you will, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's picking up individuals in wheelchairs. They're, they're the, the market is bigger. Um, it's less stodgy, right? We have, there's two big companies, maybe five, depending on how you consider it, that run probably 80% of our market, right? Even down to, you know, small companies. So the, it, it's it, it's highly concentrated in fixed route, whereas paratransit, you know, you got a lot of local guys who buy some vans, you compete. Um, it's a little higher margin, but it's a little it's a little more variable. If you screw up, you can lose money on a contract. Fixed route, you're going to make money. You're always going to make money, but you're not going to make a ton. Whereas paratransit, you should make a killing. You might you might lose if you bid it incorrectly. So that that's part that we're looking at, and we may you know we may bifurcate the company. We may do something like that and get into the the paratransit side. We do a little paratransit now. Sometimes they're combined, so they'll say you know, run fixed route and paratransit for um, you know 
Bizman, North Dakota, whatever it is. And so we'll do both because we're required to. And but as we've done that, we're like, hey, maybe we maybe we should do some standalone paratransit contracts to see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that also paratransit also sounds like it's an easier industry to break into. Yeah. Like the the you don't need a fleet, you don't maybe need as much experience because it's more fragmented and more mom and pop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you think that's a bigger opportunity than municipal? Yeah. Than municip- yeah. Running city buses. Yeah, there's more there, the volume is larger because a lot because a lot of cities do their own busing, whereas they generally contract out paratransit. Mm. Okay, so the 500 cities that we keep referring back to, they don't necessarily they're never going to actually outsource their busing. About I'd say it's probably half of the cities outsource their busing. Um, okay. So so yeah, maybe it is 500 and, and maybe a little more than that, and, and 250 outsource their their uh their fixed route but i would say the majority of them outsource their paratransit let's just we may have hit it all but let's just get an overview now of the shuttling and bus busing business from you george so we so we touched on nemt earlier we've now heard about paratransit of course municipal busing va hospital busing corporate shuttles get is are there more give us just kind of an overview of the entire shuttling and busing business in 60 seconds if you can there's one more that you haven't mentioned which is like corporate shuttles so there's a company that's just made their way doing uh, you know they do google apple tesla all those kinds of companies or all, all those large any company that has um multiple facilities or any company that's big enough that they're going to bring their employees in from, you know, other close, you know, other cities in the area. So they, they, they don't do municipal. They do almost the exact same thing, but they, they don't do, they just do private companies. I mean, it's the same type the, of the, These are the Google buses that were controversial when they were driving through the narrow streets of San Francisco to pick up programmers and take them to. Yeah. Well, they just got acquired, but Alawata. this company had a whole portfolio there. They were, I don't know what they, they got acquired for. They were called We Drive You. Um, huh. They built their whole business on just working for private companies, busing for uh-huh. fixed route busing for private companies. Okay, and so, but what about charter or one off or when you're doing? I don't even know what you do that for. Moving conference attendees around or tourism. Uh-huh. So charter is a good business. It's just different. So you're you own the buses yourself. They're probably half a million to a million dollars a piece. Um, you're going to make more money if you can keep them full, but you're going to make less money if you can't. So it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a little more variable as far as your, your margins. Uh, and we just decided we're going to do all that or none of that. Um, yeah. You know, there are people who've made a lot of money. There's a, comp- a local company called LaBus here that's, you know, made a lot of money doing, taking ski bu- kids, you know, skiing and field trips yeah. and, you know, right. towards right, the right. Grand Canyon or whatever. So there's, there's a market for that. There's a, some capital involved. And if you're small, if you've got five buses, you can keep those five buses busy, right? You can you can find the business to to keep those busy. If you get big and you got you know there's a, a COVID or something and you've got buses sitting, you, know, you still got to make those payments. Yeah, yeah. And some of these other niches within transportation lack the thing that you so dislike in your own niche, which is they lack the litigiousness of your of your niche, or not necessarily. They all kind of have it. I, yeah, I don't think you, you hear one of our problems is like when you're when you're operating a city bus, you know, you're kind of a lot of times you're getting just depending on where you are, you're kind of getting the, the bottom of the barrel getting on your bus, you know, and and in some instances, you're getting people who are kind of frail or old or elderly, maybe can't drive. And so we're, we're kind of driving around cracked eggs or, or people who are 
just mentally off. You get some weird people on your bus, just to be honest. And so that, and those people somehow, you know, they, they, they might be homeless, but they know how to call a lawyer, you know? And so you get, it's, you're, you're picking up the whole, no, I wouldn't say the whole spectrum side. You're picking up like people who, who really have nothing to lose. They're going to sue because they're not, they're not going to work. They're just riding a bus around to stay warm or, or you know, yeah. um, that, so that's desperate. Yeah. It's people who are desperate and that's, that's the challenge is those kind of people are going to sue. Um, you know, if you have a bus of people going to Disneyland, they're, they're going there for a reason, you know, it's a different demographic. And what about, I'm just going through my kind of list of where I've seen shuttles in my mind, like airport shuttles, uh-huh. for example, what, what, what would that fall under kind of corporate uh, the, the corporate business. So airport shuttles are, are a good one. They're, they're pretty much dominated by the big guys because it's, okay. it, they drive transit buses, but the problem with airport shuttles is you've got to buy your own transit buses, which are, you know, probably $500,000 a piece. And so that becomes a, a huge barrier. Just on final two questions. First, the relevance of your finance background. So I'm circling all the way back to the top. You majored in finance, and then you got a, and then you got a master's in finance, uh, and then you worked in private equity. Sometimes I'll get um, notes from folks who are intimidated because they hear my guests have these real financial chops before I, before they go out and buy a business. Mm-hmm. And if they don't come from a financial background, they say, "Well, is that is it not for me?" Therefore. So what, how, what is the relevance uh, of your financial background been to this experience? It's actually been enormously helpful. So even buying, <laughs> okay. I mean, sorry to say, but even yeah. buying the business, right? So I, the, our loan was denied. They, they said, you know, it wasn't worth what we, what we were paying for it. And I told the sellers that and they said, okay, no deal. So I still liked the deal, even, even though the bank did, you know, thought we were overpaying for it. So I wrote my own valuation, right? I, I, Took it, wrote a three-page evaluation, submit it, and they accepted it. Right, so I, um, and, and we the deal got done. So that was helpful, and even in now in, in daily operations, you know, when we're being able to put together a spreadsheet and run numbers, um, the the devil's really in the details, right? Like there are people who, or there are instances where we're comparing notes, and people will have incorrect spreadsheets and 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 like cost structures that are messed up, and we'll fix those. You know, our, our peers don't do a good job of, co- of bidding um, jobs. So I, I kind of look at bidding a job as kind of like a mini acquisition, right? I put together a evaluation for that acquisition and, and that's what I submit. And I think we do a better job of that than anyone else because, because of my finance background. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it helps a ton. I mean, there, if there's a change and we say, hey, our, these are our costs and this is why. And um, it's, yeah, it, it's been helpful. You know, we'll, we'll say- yeah. We'll, I'll, I'll do an evaluation of our peers and say, here are our peers' public financials and here are ours compared to theirs. And this is why we're better, you know, on a, a margin basis. We're, we're better operators. So all that stuff has, you know, has made our proposals look better, has made us kind of be able to, to eke out some margins where, you know, someone without that background may not have been able to. But yeah. I mean, I'm just playing my strengths. I think there are other people who have strengths in industries that, you know, I don't necessarily think you have to have a finance background, but it's helped a lot. Well, it's funny, George, because one of the things you also hear in this world of small business acquisition is operators who, who are experienced see MBA types coming in and just running a lot of spreadsheets and, mm-hmm. and, th- and kind of making fun of them being like, hey, kid, this business is not all about just like, you know, pushing numbers around on Excel. In fact, that's a very small or non-existent part of it. Yeah. Um, 
But it sounds like actually, George, in your case, a lot, a lot of your business has been um, doing spreadsheets. <laughs> it has, and it helps, you know, because they'll, you know, I mean, some of these cost structures get pretty complex. And yeah. if, if we can put our thing in, it looks better than theirs, they'll take ours, you know? And so it it has made us a lot of money. And there, there are a lot of cases. I mean, I, I think knowing people and being personal and being able to work with people is probably the top skill. But being able to, to put together numbers and, and convince someone else that your numbers are right, that's a, that's, a, that's a skill that's well compensated. George, one of the things that we talked about in our pre-call was how difficult or not you have found running RTW. I mean, you hear in, in these days and in, in the popularity of buying a small business that like, oh, it's too popular because people are under, underestimating just how difficult this is. And what do you say to that? Yeah, it's difficult in some ways. Um, in others, it's not, right? I mean, I, I love it. I enjoy the the freedom that it affords um but it it's really not that hard i i, I told you we were going to buy a you know we were going to start the subprime auto finance company and our investor um is a guy named aaron super smart guy right so he's actually gone built another company in the meantime sold it for a billion dollars i don't know how much he owned at the time but <laughs> made a killing after this this thing fell apart uh so so we're 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 trying to start the subprime auto finance company. Our expert, the, you know, the guy that kind of started the whole thing backed out. So we're trying to find another, you know, another guy who knows the industry and, and can, can be our CEO. And so Aaron gives him this spiel about how it's really not that hard. You know, he's like, I'm, I'm an average guy and I've, you know, I've grown these businesses and he's like, your employer is going to tell you it's hard and you can't do it. And, and it's scary out there and there's so many risks, uh, but it's no more risky than your employer letting you go you know, one day because the market changes or, or he finds someone better, you know? And, and so there, you know, people are afraid of the risk. They're afraid of the unknown, but really the day-to-day is not, not that hard. I mean, you're, it may be less hard than some of the roles within a company, right? You're, you're making sure people are there and they're doing the right thing. And, and uh, you know, if you do a good job of that, then it's, it isn't hard. I mean, you do have mm-hmm. freedom, freedom of schedule, freedom of time. And it's, for me, I mean, it's, it's even if, it, even if I didn't make, even if I made the same as I did, you know, working in industry, I would still choose this lifestyle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it also, of course, depends on a lot of things, but two, two of the big factors that immediately come to mind are the business itself, like how, like the nature of the work and the nature sure. of the service is being delivered. That can be harder or easier or messier or not or whatever. And uh, first and then second how healthy the business that you acquire is. Certainly if you acquire a business that, you know, you missed something in due diligence or there was something that you really couldn't have known until you got in there and you find out that it's bleeding money or whatever, that's also hard. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so if, if your business is making money, it's easier than if it's not, I guess. <laughs> sure. and I, I mean, that's the whole trick of buying a small business is I would think any small business I've looked at would be a good value. You know what I've really like taking the next step to look at seriously would have been a, a great acquisition would have made a bunch of really? money. The only problem is, is there something I don't know, right? Is there something, yeah. you know, when I was at Lucated, we were going to buy this pallet manufacturer in New York and we were pretty far down the road. And then we had another portfolio company that, that manufactured wood and they said, oh, there's a law that just changed and it's going to create another step in the process of manufacturing pallets. You got to dry your wood first before you build these pallets. And it's going to, it's going to, it would have killed our margin. I mean, there'd be zero profit in this company. And the guy yeah. who's selling us knew that and we didn't, right? And so that's, I mean, uh, exactly. that's what deal deals is, right? Like every business, 
is good unless there's something coming that you don't know about. Yeah. Although, in your defense, uh, you're a testament to your ability. That's exactly what happened to you in your own business. <laughs> it <laughs> I mean, is luckily. The VA I mean, hospital business was going away. The yeah, three contracts I, that you had, you lost two of the three. That's true. I'm pretty sure those guys knew that too. Um, right. But <laughs> yeah. So, and that's, it's hard, right? You don't, that there, that's, I think that, I guess if you're going to say it's, it's hard, it, that is the risk in buying a business is, do you trust this person? Are they, why are they selling? Um, you know, they, they've, they've got to have a good story. And even if they do have a good story, there might still be, you know, something that, that they know that you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, one last question on, on this topic, George, you, um, had mentioned in our pre-call that over the years, you've gotten a lot of people reach out to you saying that they, they want to buy a business like you, like 30 people or a couple dozen people. And as far as you know, none of them have actually proceeded mm-hmm. with doing so. What do you think that's about the interest, but the, the unwillingness to actually forge ahead and actually do it because it's hard simply. Yeah, it's hard to get cold feet. I think they're, you know, maybe their their bosses talk them out of it, or their spouse talks them out of it, or you know, whatever. Um, but I think that's it. It's the fear of the unknown more than anything. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But I mean, I always encourage them. Maybe I, it, it's kind of been discouraging because no one's actually done it. But I always encourage people to do it just because it's been such a great experience for me. And I think it's, you know, it's 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 liberating as far as your your time goes, and it's kind of creative. You can you can do it how you want. And I feel like it's. For me, I'm, I'm a lot happier. You know, I, I try to give that entrepreneurial kind of opportunity to my employees because it's, yeah, I think it just it's it just lets you be more of yourself and, and have more influence. And yeah, it's great. Last question for you, George. So um, let's circle back to now that you're on the other side of the table from when you were a PE analyst and seeing the operators, you know, cash out of uh, cash out of their blue collar businesses for a hundred million dollars or whatever. Uh, what? do you now understand that you didn't then, or is it, is it, is it as great as you thought or reflect for me? <laughs> um, it is, it is as great as I thought. I really like it. I, I love being, you know, you know, you succeed or fail on your own merits, which I like. Um, and you don't have someone telling you what to do or someone with, you know, people with ulterior motives and, you know, people trying to look better, that kind of stuff. Like that's totally counterproductive. And, and I try to stamp that out in our business. Um, the one thing that I do get, you know, that I used to kind of rag on people for when I was in private equity, it's like not knowing your numbers as well as you should, right? Like, I, I don't know exactly, you know, what our margins are right now. I've got a, I've got a controller who does all that and he's great. He's better than I am at it. So I don't need to, but I always used to think like, they they don't know what their margins on this product or like, you know, how do you not know that? Like we're running the business. Like it doesn't really matter if it it doesn't change what you're going to do. It doesn't matter if you know it or not, you know? So now I get like. Okay, they were spending their their time on what was most important, and you know we're we're looking at every line item and saying, hey, your margin on this is a variance from last year, you know, of this, and yeah, and yeah, they they really were looking at the the big picture and what's going to move the needle, right? Like just because you know it, it doesn't change what you do. And there were instances where we do some financial analysis and, and get some, you know, learn some stuff and kind of find things that that they might not have known, but. Um, Maybe they should have done a little bit more of it, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that actually dovetails nicely w- with what we were talking about, the, the relevance of your finance background. So so PE folks, MBA folks who who really do look at these businesses very financially, yes, they they, they should and probably uh, g- good, pe- good people listening to this think about a business strategically and holistically, but the finances is so much a part of it. And it's easy to 
critique the the sellers and the owners for not being financially sophisticated or this and that. But it really is when you're an outsider, very different than when you're the insider, the guy running the ship, the guy or gal running the ship. And they probably were responding to the pressures that they needed to, which was not knowing precisely what their SDE was or precisely what their margin was or some other financial metric. It was, there was probably something a lot less quantitative, perhaps. Yeah. And you can have that luxury if you're making money. Right? And so I think you got to have the financial, you've got to be making money first in order to be able to do that. But yeah, it's, I think that's true. George, this has been great. Uh, if people want to reach out to you with any questions, what's your preferred mode of communication? Sure. They can just go to the website and just send a message. There's a, they can leave their email or not. They can make comments anonymously. They can just, you go to rtwmanagement.com and contact us and you just, the messages come straight to me and they can say, they can, um, if they put their email address in, I can reply. If they don't, then it's just a comment. Great. So if somebody wants to personally reach out to you, they should, they can do that via the contact us form on, on RTW's website. Yep. All right. George Goats, thank you very much for uh, your story and for giving us a, a great view into the, the transportation and busing business. Fascinating. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Will.